Hello to all of you unconventional conventionists. Welcome back to Rocky Talkie 10 4 D711. <laughs> I'm John. And I'm Aaron. And today we are joined by the one, the only, Russ Turk. Welcome to the show, Russ. Hello there. So for those of you who might not know, Russ is an incredibly talented children's toy designer who has worked on design projects for a few little places that you may have heard of, you know, Toys R Us, FAO Schwartz, Fisher Price, My Little Pony, Strawberry Shortcake, just to name a few. And I mean a few. These are a few mere highlights from Russ's wildly impressive resume. But that's not quite why we're here today. You see, in addition to being a toy designer for children, Russ also creates latex monster masks. Think a Halloween adventure times a million. These masks are beautiful, sometimes terrifying, custom-made works of art that Russ creates by hand. Latex mask creation seems like such a niche art form to get involved with. Russ, why don't you introduce yourself and tell us, uh, how'd you get started in this crazy thing? All right. Hello, everybody. My name is Russ Turk. I am in New Jersey. Uh, how did I get into this? I've always been a fan of monster movies since I was a kid. And rubber, you know, every kid, you look at monster masks and on Halloween and you get dressed up or you smear your face with shoe polish or something. Since I was creative when I was a kid and I always, always drawing pictures. And I read in a magazine, maybe it was Fangoria in the 80s about you make um, you get clay and you make a mold with plaster and you pour latex in there. And I thought that's cool. You can actually make something dimensional, and that's how I kind of get into it. And you you know there were old catalogs you could get for like Don Post Studios, and you could just look at the masks in the catalog and wish you could buy them. And you know they were way too complicated for someone like me to make when I was a kid. But it was just something I would stare at, and it was so cool. You could put them on and walk around the neighborhood and. I never bought a mask when I was a kid, but I would always daydream about owning them or how do you make them? I'm reading books on the subject. It was before YouTube and the internet, so there was no internet or YouTube to go watch someone make a video on, uh, watch someone make a mask, but it was always interesting. And in high school, I did get into it, but that's how, how it began. It's just fascinating. It's, it's more than just drawing. It's actually making something tactile that you can actually touch and creating a character that you can bring to life. Awesome, Russ. So would you tell us a bit about what the mask creation process entails? Like we've been able to learn a lot of it from watching your videos on social media, but I'm sure the listeners would love a quick rundown just straight from the expert himself. I'm hardly an expert, but I will give you the very basics. The clay I use is many different types of clay, but I use a clay called WED clay, W-E-D, which the story goes is named after Walt Disney. It's Walter Elias Disney because I think that's the clay they formulated back in the 40s and 50s when they would make all the stuff for Disneyland, all the full size, and they needed to be able to sculpt quickly and large because oil-based clay is very hard, literally hard. And the kind of clay I use is very soft. It, it dries out quickly. It's kind of like the clay you see people make pots out of when they spin on those wheels. It's very water-based, so you can really work quickly with it and, and take big gobs of it in your hand and move it around. So you, you sculpt your mask with that. And then you make a two-piece mold out of a – it's not plaster of Paris, but for all – you know, since I'm giving this talk here briefly to non-mask makers, basically it's a plaster of Paris type of material. It's a two-piece mold, the front half and the back half. Because if you just poured plaster over your sculpture, you'd never be able to get the sculpture out because it would be locked in there. So it's a two-piece mold, 
And there's my videos on my uh, YouTube uh, channel show how that's done. And then when the mold is dried, you pry the two pieces apart, you clean all the clay out, and you put the two pieces of the mold back together, and you basically have a negative of your sculpture. And you seal that up to two pieces, and then you pour latex in it, you pour it right out, you drain it out, and that leaves a film of watery liquid latex, which dries. You pour another layer in, you pour it out. That So you build up a thickness, about like, you know, a quarter of an inch. You can do all the latex pouring in and out in a day. You know, and not, you don't, not literally a day. You have to let it dry for a couple hours and pour some more. So it's back and forth. And then once it's dried, you pull it out and you have a mask. And then you do special paints for latex that, you know, won't crack and you airbrush it. And sometimes you have to put the hair on it. And that's a whole other story. But that's the, basically how it's done. It's clay, mold, latex. See, it's funny that you explain it that way because I guarantee you, you described it so simply, Russ, but I feel like if I ever attempted to do that directly from those directions, I would make a mess that ends up looking at my dad. And that's, nobody wants to see that. <laughs> we'll leave it to you. <laughs> but there's plenty of YouTube videos. If anybody hearing this wants to learn to make masks, there's plenty of online videos. There's plenty of courses you can take online. There's all kinds of information out there. But it does That's, take practice and patience to do it and to make it look good. That's super awesome, Russ. Is the process similar for like art piece masks like like you work on versus like the kind of wearables that people would do or anything like that? I'm sure that there's different process in there, but uh, how similar are they? Well, I mean, some of the stuff I do is wearable. Lately, the things I've made, like the Rocky Horror ones, I glue the eyeballs in so you can't wear it because obviously there's no eye holes. But I mean, the riffraff mask I made is wearable. Yeah, if you didn't have eyeballs glued in, you could wear it. And it, I did try it on when I took it out of the mold. It fit my head. But, I mean, when you're making a mask that's wearable, that person can actually go to, like, a Halloween party in, you have to make sure when you sculpt it that it's – that it's the everything is lined up, that it will fit an average face and eyeballs. You know, when I make – I don't make myself specifically to for people to wear. If someone can wear one of my masks, great. But I just make it because I just want the final thing to look cool. Mm -hmm. So sometimes I make them bigger than normal because I just want to make a really big mask. So that's the difference. Some There are some masks that are wearable. Some masks are called display masks that are not meant to be worn. They're just meant to sit on a shelf for a collector. I, I like doing those because, you know, I don't want to have to be constricted to making it a certain way so someone can wear it. Yeah, that makes total sense. And I mean, and it sounds like all of your different pieces are kind of all unique and like children in a way and like you created them and you love them all but is there a mask specifically that like you're the most proud of that you've done over your career oh god i don't i mean i definitely have masks that i don't like that i've made um i always think the last thing i made is probably the best thing i've made <laughs> like the, the frankenfurter i did recently is probably the best thing i've made i mean it's not a monster it's more of a glamorous monster but it really came out good because I've been getting into sculpting likenesses, trying to get sculpt actual people or characters and have it look like them. So that's a bit, really big challenge. The Tim Curry one, really, I, I, I got it really good. So that, that, on that alone, I think it's one of my best things because sculpting something in clay to look like an actor and have people actually see it and go and know exactly who it is, that's, that's a feat. And and I and I really and I haven't always been able to nail it when I'm doing a likeness. So this time I really think I'm getting better at it. So I was very proud of that. 
Aaron is currently shaking and sweating in his seat right now. I can see it now because I know, I know for a fact that the only thing that he hates about his riffraff costume is that his face does not look like Richard O'Brien. And I can see him slowly slipping his hand into his pocket to pull out his wallet and buy that riffraff mask from you so that he can truly, truly look like Richard O'Brien on stage. I mean, you're not wrong, John. It, Control it, I mean, yourself. It's it's a gorgeous max, but your Frank piece is is awesome as well. Like I saw that, and I just me was like, damn, that is Tim Curry. You know, that looked so great. Patricia Quinn posted it on her Facebook page. Oh, that's so cool. That's so cool. She's she's real active in the community. She loves you know, chiming in on all that stuff. That Frankenfurter mask actually, someone bought it, so I shipped it on Wednesday. Oh wow! Congrats. Thank you. But this morning, because I once it's sold, I I want I always like to have a copy of all my masks in my workshop, like on a little display area. So I cast another one that day. And actually, this morning I finished the second copy of it. So I replaced the one I sold with a brand new one. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. But actually, on the second one, I actually did something that I wasn't able to didn't do on the first one, which I I gave him that one arched eyebrow. You know the part where he goes um. Uh, what's that? He's during sweet transvestite. He says, um, "Got caught with a flat." How about that? Something like that. I forget the line. He he, ra- he looks right at the camera and he arches one eyebrow like he's going like Oof, like that. I did the uh, the first one. I just there was I didn't uh, do that, but this one I did. It, it's the it's the painted on eyebrow, not his actual eyebrow, but it's kind of goes up a little bit, kind of like that John Belushi kind of a uh, one eyebrow up a little bit. It's a very subtle thing, but I did it. Super cool. So what made you choose the horror genre as the focus of your projects? Well, it's I don't necessarily only do horror, but I guess because like I've done, like I did a few months ago, I did Vincent Price, A Mask of Vincent Price uh, as the, the scientist in Edward Scissorhands. And that's not really horror. Mm-hmm. But and it's, I mean, if you look at the mask itself, it's just an old man. It's just Vincent Price. But I, I think the characters from movies that I choose to do are, I think horror characters are are more interesting. I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, well, monsters are monsters. I mean, they're all, from, you know, they're interesting creatures, like, uh, or fantasy creatures or something. I mean, I don't know who else from movies you'd want to do a mask of. I don't know. I would, wouldn't be interested. I mean, do who else would be interesting from a drama? <laughs> I mean, when you make any kind of art, you have to make what you like. That if you don't make what you like, what you're passionate about, then you're then you're just a work for hire. That if someone calls me and says, "Can you make me a mask of I don't know Matthew McConaughey?" I'd be <laughs> like, uh, "If you want to pay me for it, I'll charge you a lot of money, but it's not like <laughs> anything my heart would be into, but I'll do it." Right. Let me let me send you my rates, and we'll get back to that. <laughs> Sometimes people have asked me they commission commission for something that I really don't want to do. Mm-hmm. And so I'll give them a price that is ridiculous, and then you never never hear back. That way, I, I can never say I turned anybody down. But I don't want to. I have a you know my I have a regular full time design job which I love. So I don't need to sell masks or anything. I just do it because I love doing it. So I don't want to take on a project if I don't want to do it. Mm-hmm. So that's why you know I'll say like, well, it'll cost three thousand dollars to make you that Matthew McConaughey mask, and then you never hear back. And I'm like, good. <laughs> Yeah, it's a win-win situation for you. If they say no or they don't get back to you, then you don't have to do it. But if they say yes, then you're getting an amazing amount of money for it. So I wouldn't even want to do it though. I give if if they if someone actually calls my bluff and says yes and pays me a down payment, I'm like, oh god, I have to do it now. <laughs> <laughs> but whatever, it hasn't happened yet. 
Oh, that's awesome. But we're here to talk about some of the Rocky pieces that you just did. So, Russ, clearly you're a fan of the Rocky Horror Picture Show, or at least enough to make its characters the subject of your art. Do you have any fun personal experiences with the movie or the stage show that you'd like to share? Like, how did you get into Rocky and what, what was your first experience? It's all that jazz. Well, I will tell you, I, I don't know all your guys' ages, but <laughs> most likely I saw Rocky Horror before any of you were born. That's probably correct. I went to art school in Philadelphia, but I transferred for a year to Florida because my mother and stepfather moved to Florida and I could live with them while going to art school in Fort Lauderdale. So I went to Fort Lauderdale, didn't know anybody. And there was a guy in my class and his friend, uh, they were going to something called the Rocky Art Picture Show on a Friday night or a Saturday night. And they said, oh, to a lot of our classmates, who wants to go? And I was like, I've heard of that. And this is 1987. So I said, okay. oh, I'll go to that. It'll be fun. And going to the Rocky Horror Picture Show is like beer or alcohol. It's either you like it right away you know or you don't and you know right away you don't. Mm. And I know some people in my class were sitting in that audience and they were like falling asleep <laughs> or they were like, what is this? And I was like, ah, these are my people. So, <laughs> so I started going every Friday and Saturday, and I got to be part of the quote-unquote cast. I played Dr. Scott many times. I still know my lines. It is, I suppose, some kind of audio vibratory physiomolecular transport device. Yes, Brad, it's something we ourselves have been working on for quite some time now. But it seems our friend here is not a means of perfecting it, a device which is capable of breaking down solid matter and projecting it through space, and who knows, perhaps even time itself. See? Oh, man, that's great. That's not even you knowing the lines. That's also you doing an excellent impression of him, too. <laughs> Seriously. I did it. I had the wheelchair and everything. And I used to put the gray when I had hair. I used to put the gray stuff in my hair and everything. Oh, that's awesome. We've got people on New York kit that can't even remember those lines today. So I'm sitting right here, Aaron. <laughs> the great thing about Rocky Horror is I saw Rocky Horror in many... Florida had it all over the place in the 80s. So you could go to different towns. And we used to take this pile in the car and go to, like, three or four different never even been to like an hour away and every place you go it seems there are certain maybe it's not this way now there are certain places where or certain states where there are different lines so you can go you can go somewhere and yell out a line and everybody's like what is never heard that before i mean in manhattan used to be in the east village and then at chelsea cinemas i don't know where it plays now in philadelphia i mean I'm sure there's different lines for every place. And then there are some that are universal for every place you go. Oh, yeah. You really had a lot of normalization of that when the audience participation album came out. But that was, you know, in the mid 80s and whatever. And everywhere has still, even to this day, you go to New Jersey versus Manhattan and you're going to hear different lines, you know, throughout the entire show. After I finished The Riff Raff Mask, my partner and I were going to watch a movie and he suggested... Rocky Horror, and I have it on Blu-ray, and I was like, oh, you, you really want to watch Rocky Horror? I've been playing the music downstairs while I was working on the mask. You, you really want to watch it? Okay. And I said to him, have you ever seen it in the theater before? And he's like, yeah, I saw it, you know, we've been together almost 10 years, but he saw it when he was younger, at, I guess in Chelsea Cinemas in Manhattan, and he was divergenized and all that. And I was like, all right. And I said, would you mind even though we're home, just you and I, can I, are you going to bother you if I say some of the talk back lines and everything. He's like, no, do it. And we did the whole thing. And he was very impressed. He told me, he's like, that was really impressive. You could do all that still. But there were certain times during the movie where I caught myself. I was like, oh, wow, I can't say that in public if we ever see this. 
it's, no, because it's really like things I would say in the 80s and maybe 90s when I was seeing New Jersey that I was I caught myself. I was like, wow, because, you know, sometimes you see Rocky Horror for decades and you know those lines like the back of your hand. Yeah. I mean, years later, I still know those lines because I saw it every weekend for years <laughs> that that I was I was just, I blurred out a line sitting here on the couch a few weeks ago. And I was like, oh, I can't say that in public nowadays because you just people would ugh, it's just a different world. Yeah, there's there's definitely some that haven't aged well. It, it amazes me how people now still seem to be able to find the buttons to push, find the right things that are on the edge now. And, you know, we can leave some of those things that, that are, you know, hateful or not politically correct. Yeah, they, they can be left in the dust. That's okay. Especially because, like, and that's just humor in and of itself. You know, every, what is funny now is not what was funny 20, 30 plus years ago and vice versa. Like, what was funny 20, 30 plus years ago are not funny anymore. And it's really cool how the humor of Rocky Horror evolves with the current kind of climate that the Western audience is in. It's absolutely wildly interesting. Also, oh, I, I forgot to say, I also saw on Broadway when they did Rocky Horror in the 90s oh jealous oh man that's awesome yeah that and i forgot because i'm a big dick cavett fan i mean from those i have a lot of those old dvds when he used to have those um interview shows in the 70s i mean i was a little kid at the time i wasn't watching dick cavett but i really came to really appreciate him in the last 20 years or so and he was the host on broadway and that was so cool but yeah i i don't remember the show but it was good i enjoyed it but, I mean, it'll never touch the movie or the original cast. But I did want to say one thing. I almost forgot to bring this up. That Fox TV version of it a few years ago. Ooh. I was, ve- before it even aired, I was on social media. I was very vocally against it. And I brought up a very good point, which a lot of people, and I'll swing I'll back to why I love the movie, is because if you looked at the trailer even for that Fox Rocky Horror Everybody, even the Transylvanians, they would look like they were all models. And the thing that I loved about Rocky Horror, the movie, and it, re- and, and it really got me into it was when I was 19 years old or whatever and saw for the first time, the thing that I loved about it is the people that went to it looked like the Transylvanians. They were all shapes and sizes and ages, thin, fat, older, younger, weird looking, crazy looking, just everybody didn't wasn't a cookie cutter. And those were the people that I just felt like I wanted to hang out with because they weren't perfect. And when I saw this Fox trailer, I thought, well, what do they, they went to a casting agency and tried to get all the perfect looking people for Transylvanians. And I said, and I said online, that's exactly the opposite of Rocky Hearts about. You're not wrong at all. Like that's a, that's a great point. I mean, it was, and it was, and I knew it would be horrible and it was. So it was. I'm glad it failed. <laughs> I'm glad it failed. I'm glad it failed. <laughs> it's true. It's true. I mean, that that's a fantastic point. I haven't heard that that point raised uh, very often. I mean, usually, there, I mean, there's so much to hate, right, about that remake that, you know, usually everyone hits the low-hanging fruit and stuff. But that's a great point. I love that. If you look at the time warp in the movie, right, you <laughs> literally, they go down the line. You have that tiny little woman. You have <laughs> that really tall long-haired skinny guy you got the the chubby lady you got the old man who has no hair i mean it's literally every physical type body type and age group that you can have and and i think that's what makes it so interesting and that that wasn't by accident for today's audiences or at least that guy kenny ortega i think was 
your director. I mean, they just wanted some beautiful, sanitized, pretty people, Rocky Horror. And that's not what Rocky Horror is. We had a Nikki asked a question a couple weeks back on the podcast. We were talking about the remake and like why people hate it and stuff like that. And kind of one of the main things that me, Aaron and Nikki kind of surmised at the end of it is that it was Rocky, but it was polished. And that's not what Rocky is. At NYC, we have folks who are of all different body types, of all different backgrounds and ethnicities and races and sexualities and everything, because that is something that we see from the original Rocky Horror cast, at the very least from the movie, but no less from the original stage show as well. It's not all just like the same person, but just duplicated 20, 30 times. It's it's all about individuality and uniqueness. So you have to bring that to your performance. So I completely agree with you. I mean, Richard O'Brien, who wrote the story and the songs, Mm -hmm. here is a man, if you listen to the words of, especially like all the songs, but especially Sweet Transvestite, you know nowadays that he was writing those lyrics because he could not be what he wanted to be in real life. Sweet Transvestite? Mm-hmm. In, in the early 70s, Richard O'Brien couldn't walk around in a dress or wearing women's clothes like he can now. Oh, yeah. So so him, don't dream it, be it. I mean, he had to dream it back then. And that's and the, that's how where the art came from, his pain and his hiding himself. He was a balding man with long hair and all this. I mean, if, if the movie Rocky Horror was written by someone else or, or tried to, it wouldn't have been the same. And, it, and if everybody in the cast was just perfect looking... And with, you know, beautiful hair and perfect bodies, it wouldn't have been the same. It wouldn't have become found into the audience. It would have just been some glam rock 1970s musical. And who knows if it, it wouldn't have had it wouldn't have found its audience because it found the freaks and geeks that before the Internet, they gravitated towards it. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I know that, like, the number one reason I do Rocky is is to hang out with my friends and, you know, a little bit of that performance and that, you know, I'm, I'm not a typical looking guy and I, I love being able to express myself wherever I want. And so much of it is just about, you know, uh, getting to hang out with your friends, have a good time, be in a safe place where, like, you can be you and all of that. So you kind of curtailing off of that. Um, you, you did Rocky for a very long time. Do you have anything that like you think is like your favorite performance or your favorite community memory or anything along those lines? Huh. <laughs> I mean, I for once in a while, I would play Riff Raff, believe it or not. Oh, I had cool. made that costume, the gold at the end and everything. But I mean, it was really bad. But, but this is <laughs> years ago. But I mostly played I, favorite memory of like Rocky Horror going to Rocky Horror. Oh, God. Ugh. <laughs> I think the half the point is we don't remember some of the nights we go to Rocky Horror, right? I, went so many, I mean, I went hundreds of times. So many times. All right, here's something. Here's something. There was a place in Fort Lauderdale where I used to see it. And I don't remember the name. It was one of those, you know, like in Texas, they have like the Alamo Draft House. I've never been to it, but I've heard of it. Mm-hmm. It was like one of those places, like a draft house, like a big, it was a big theater. And it wasn't like a theater that had like seats. It was more like tables and chairs with waitress service. With a big a stage and a screen. And you could like order beer at your table and stuff. And they, I, this, I hadn't thought about this in years, but you just made me remember. When you bought a ticket for Rocky Horror there, this is the only place I'd ever seen Rocky Horror. When you bought your ticket, they handed you a plat- paper bag of all your stuff you needed. Oh, to nice. Throw. They had pre-made bags. I mean, maybe the theater didn't do it, but they were allowed to 
give you the bag as you walked in. So you had your rice or your toilet paper, whatever. I don't think they handed out toilet paper. But I know it was rice and it was uh, whatever else you throw. I forget. Mm-hmm. Eddie, I don't know. But yeah, I remember that. That was fun. But I don't know. There's so many times seeing Rocky Yard. It's just always just fun. And it's funny how certain people of every generation find their way to Rocky Horror. Every generation. In the 70s when it came out, in the 80s, in the 90s. Now, I mean, and, and they continue, it will continue to. Because it's just people are drawn to it. It just attracts people that are still finding their way and don't fit in with the mainstream, I'll say. Oh, for sure. I mean, we have in some some places in the country, there are three generations of Rocky Horror performers that are, are going to, which you do your math and you go, that seems a little suspect. But you're like, no, no, really. I, I've, I've had cast members on New York who like have brought their grandmother to the show who went and saw it in 79 and, and 1980. And I know that I found it, I found it almost God, was it 16 years ago now or so? And have been going with it since and seeing the new kids coming in now, some of whom, you know, born in 2000, 2001, 2002, where it's, (laughs) I have to remind myself half the jokes that we're screaming, they certainly aren't going to get because they don't even know who those people are. Some things probably won't age well, but some things, I mean, there are certain lines I know. I mean, I don't know when towards the beginning of the movie, when Brad and Janet, the car breaks down, they go to the castle, and they knock on the door. And before Riff answers, they're standing there, and on the left-hand side is like a stone gargoyle like with a beak or something, some kind of bird thing. And we used to yell out, Scooby-Doo on acid. And I was wondering if that would even, nowadays, I, if people even know who Scooby-Doo is. I oh, think yeah. they might because there's toys in the toy aisle of Scooby-Doo still. Yeah, it's – uh. So what we do, at least in NYC, I don't know about other casts, but when the Gargoyle shows, we say, hey, look, it's Scooby-Doo stoned because he's made of stone. But I think that that one still has uh, longevity. I mean, there's lots of drugs. Like at some point when Chucky Gray does his thing at the beginning and the screen's about to melt. So we we would yell out, for those of you on acid, the screen's about to melt. (laughs) And I don't know if that would even play these days. Maybe you'd have to say ecstasy. I don't know. I mean, yeah, I mean, some of the audience, uh, it probably plays with uh, the older crowd. A lot of the younger crowd uh, isn't really there to get fucked up and <laughs> and party like it was in the 80s. Uh, they're kind of just there for, you know, to scream and dance and sing and, and more of the, the, the Broadway kids crowd kind of thing. But we'll still scream the lines because they're funny as hell. I love all the good drug jokes. I think that they're part of what, uh, what makes Rocky fun, right, is all that edgy, you know, kind of weird humor that you know, you don't get to say in normal company. Do people at um, still try to, like, there's a couple of times where Frankenfurter and Riff have, uh say, you know, you see, and people try to use, do the F and the K yep. in between to make it work. Yeah, that one I always screw up. There's one at the very end of the movie, right, where Riff is about to kill Frank, and he says, you see, but there's a pause between the beginning and the end, so it's an F, you see, K, spells fuck. <laughs> And I always feel like that the humor with Rocky is is really interesting, especially when we talk about it in the grand scheme of the callbacks, because like they go from like super edgy sometimes, or at least in this day and age, like offensive jokes that are there for shock humor. But then you also get those callbacks that are just fucking dumb, <laughs> like those. And they never they never cease to make the entire audience laugh because of how stupid they are. I mean, I'm sure people still do and Riff at the end when Riff goes, say goodbye to all of this. And everybody goes, goodbye, all of this. Yep. And hello. Hello. You know. Hello, to oblivion. 
Hi, Oblivion. Hi, How's Oblivion. The How's the wife and kids? See? See? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Yeah, it's really funny to see which ones stick around and which ones kind of change. It's even funnier when some of the ones that stick around are references that you know that the people who are saying them um, have absolutely no idea what it's a reference to. Uh, at the end of the movie, when um, literally before Dr. Scott and Janet and, and Brad leave and they're all after the floor show and everything and Frankfurt is dead, Dr. Scott goes to riff. You're okay by me. And he puts his hand out. And everybody, of course, this is really dated. Everybody go, Nanu Nanu, because it's a Mork and Mindy <laughs> reference from Robin Williams. I'm sure no one under the age of 40 gets that. No, nope. I, I'm I'm right there with you. I bet that they don't. And I I barely get it. Like, I, I've only watched Mork and Mindy a few times. That was still after my time. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I don't hear a lot of... A lot of those references but then again you know there's still the beatles references that people will make and there's still some of the the iconic 70s references that that people do get if if we're referencing kiss or alice cooper or stuff like that i love that i love that so many of the jokes that we use you know people can come back 30 years later and hear the same things and some new stuff but a lot of the same things that they heard you know a long time ago and all of the references that get updated are some of my favorites, right? Before, you know, obviously everything had to shut down for the pandemic, but before there was a lot of callbacks that involved Trump and a lot of stuff that was about, you know, just modern politics or, or social cases, you know, that who's in the coffin gets up, always would get updated every week with whichever celebrity had passed and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, my personal favorite topical one uh, for like a week or two before everything shut down, there's a part in Damn It Janet where Brad goes to kiss Janet, but then he pulls away. Uh, and the joke always used to be, well, don't kiss her. She's got mono because mono was the kissing disease. But like the two weekends that we did right before COVID shut us down, it was don't kiss her. She's got COVID. And you got a really delicious mixed reaction from that one because COVID wasn't like quote unquote serious yet. So there were people who knew the animosity that was coming who would be like, boo, that would suck. But then there were other people that actually like thought it was really funny. Topicality is always really good with Rocky. I, this has been like, this is imprinted in my brain because I did it every Friday and Saturday for like two yep. years straight in Florida. Oh, you can you can always tell, right? You you have a conversation with somebody and, and they'll go, Oh, I did Rocky back in the day. You'll be like, Oh, okay. And then you'll get partway through the conversation and they'll be like, No. But no, it's when we have a conversation with guys like you who did definitely do it and they can start dropping the references and the callbacks and you go, Oh, you you were in. You were like in and you were here, you were with us, you were, you know, all that. So it, it's great. I, I love talking about this kind of stuff. How many years is nineteen eighty seven to now? Like thirty 33, 30, yeah, yeah, it's, it's longer than half of us have been alive, so. <laughs> Still do that Dr. Scott dialogue 33 years later with with the timing. I mean, and I, mean, I haven't done it in an audience in, since the late 80s. That's how many times I did it. It's, it's part of my brain. That's so great. So, Russ, we know for sure that some of our listeners are going to be interested in checking out your work. So where can they find you online? Well, they can see a lot of the masks and stuff I do on Instagram. Um, my Instagram username is Russ Turk, but it's an underscore between my first and last name. So it's lowercase R-U-S-S underscore lowercase T-U-R-K. And please follow me on Instagram because I want to crack 2,000 followers. I'm like 50 away. Nice. And also, there's a link in my uh, Instagram profile for my Etsy store where if you want to buy one of my masks, but they're not cheap. And um, on YouTube, where you can see videos of some of the masks I make. I mean, I actually sometimes shoot making of videos and there's a making of video for the Frankenfurter mask. 
and my username on YouTube is Indie Cabaret NYC. I N D I E C A B A R E T N Y C. And that name is because over 10 years ago, I used to go to Joe's Pub a lot because I know a lot of performers that perform there. And I used to shoot their shows for them. Oh, you know, cool. It was a tripod and a camera. So I used to up- upload a lot of the edited videos to that YouTube page. And, you know, I mean, for years, so there's hundreds of videos of like Bridget Everett. And, um, man, I used to shoot uh, years ago. Billy Eichner, when he before he became you know a big star, he was doing shows at Joe's Pub, and he'd pay me like seventy five bucks to shoot a show for him. That's so, awesome. Um, and a lot like our hit parade and Justin Bond and Lady Rizzo and all the Molly Pope, all these people that are NYC, New York City like cabaret performers and mm-hmm. stuff like that. I used to shoot a lot of videos, but now I don't do that anymore because you know I just don't. I got bored of that. But now I put <laughs> videos of mask making things up there. Well, that's awesome. I mean, speaking about in person, right? We've seen on your social that you sometimes attend conventions as a dealer. Uh, do you have any plans, you know, to sell your work in real life as the world starts to open back up and, you know, maybe some of this stuff comes back? The one big show I went to was in twenty fall of 2019. I went to Indiana to Horror Hound Weekend, and they have a small subdivision in that big convention which is called mask fest which is a yearly thing for three days horror hound it's at a big convention center and they get thousands of people it's like it's kind of like comic con for horror movies mm-hmm. it was really fun i mean it was a 12-hour drive we drove there with a car full of stuff and it was a really great experience i won best new vendor for mask fest which was awesome which is oh, something nice. i wanted to win um and i met some really cool people that also make masks from around the country that I now I talk to regularly and I would love to see them again. But unfortunately, um, because of COVID, it was canceled last year. And then it doesn't look like it's happening this year. There are there, there are small conventions right here and there, but I, I don't want to go to one unless it's the right one. And like some of these around here, especially in this area, are just a lot of them, the most of the people that go to them are just going to meet the celebrities and get autographs. And I don't want to take two or three days to go to my table and just stand there and not sell anything. Mm-hmm. So I, I'm going to be very choosy. I don't, you know, I, like I said before, I make masks for fun. My full-time job is I'm a toy designer for a company. So that's my full-time gig. I don't need to, if I never sold another mask, I can still pay my mortgage. It's fine. But so I don't want to do anything unless I really want to. So I'm going to wait. If a convention comes by, that's, I feel it's going to be a good one. There'll be other mask makers there and it's, it's worth going to, then I'll go to it. But nothing, it doesn't look like anything's happening this year. That's fine. I'm sure by next year it'll be back. Oh, yeah. I mean, and that's great. That's that's the best way to, to have your hobby, right? Where you don't have to convert it into a money-making scheme and you don't have to, like, jump through all this stuff. Yeah, that's great. That's great. My old boss, when I worked for Toys R Us, he says to me, well, how are you going to upscale your mask-making to a business? And I was like, I'm not. Because <laughs> I don't want to turn something that I love into, into something that I hate. Yeah. Because I already have a job, you know, and I love my job, but it's, that's the, that's the job I have to follow. You know, I, I, I report to someone I have to, this is what I have to do. ABC, do this, do that. Okay. That's fine. But when it comes to masks, I'm in charge and yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to turn it into something that I, oh, I have to make this because this, I have to make 20 of these. I don't want that. I just want to be able to go down and make what I want to make. And if I'm like the Riff Reverend and Frankenfurter, I limited it to make, I'll have three copies available, you know, for now and down the road, if I want to make more, but I don't want to, I know people that make masks that 
you know, they have to make, they sell like 20 copies of each mask they make. And they have to sit there for like a month or two making the same mask, copies of it over and over again. That would make me lose my mind. I want to move on to the next product. I already started another mask a week ago. I mean, sculpting. I mean, I don't want to, I, I, once I finish a mask, okay, great. It's done. Next, you know? Oh, for sure. I mean, you see that in the in the Rocky community all the time with people who uh, get into making costumes or, or pieces for the community like that. And at some point, you're just like, man, how many Columbia tailcoats can you make before you're just bored of it, you know? Yep. With anything, anything creative. You can't just, once you make something creative, if someone wants to buy one of them or make a copy, that's great. But I don't want to sit there making 10 of something because mm-hmm. it's not fun anymore. And it's like repetitive. It's like a broken record. It's like, this was this was fun when I made the first two or three. But now I'm on the 12th. Ugh. Do I really have to make that? Ugh. So I know that you said that you just started a mask recently. I don't know if this is relevant to that, but do you have any new pieces in mind that our listeners should know to keep an eye out for? Like I said earlier, I'm really getting into, I want to get into likeness, still stay, do likeness sculpting, which is sculpting a character, you know, based on a real person. In other words, I did frankenfurter to make it look like tim curry or i did riffraff to look like richard o'brien i didn't want to do a generic version i wanted to have it look like the actor Mm -hmm. i did vincent price from edward scissorhands as the old scientist and they look like the people i really like doing it's a challenge so the thing i started monday a week ago is i'm doing boris karloff as frankenstein's monster Ooh, but i want it to look like boris karloff and it does so far it's still i've only worked on it i started it monday so it's still very rough but the likeness is there because so I, I think that's what I'm going to be doing for I, – I can see myself continuing to do that for a while now. I really like and sculpting characters. I mean I can come – I've come up – you go to my Etsy page. You'll see I've done original characters. Mm-hmm. But something is very fun and challenging about sculpting a character that is known and also have it look like the person so that someone that sees it knows who it is and knows – and can say, oh, that's such and such actor as this character – that to me is really fun and exciting because it also it helps you sharpen your sculpting skills because if you're if you have to make something look like a person from real life and and have people recognize it without having to say that's supposed to be blah 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 that means that you're really improving as a sculptor not only do i like doing it it's actually making me a better sculptor by having to really pay attention to the anatomy and the face and and it's amazing that the slightest little millimeter or two can make all the difference in a mouth or a smile mm. or, a, or the, a, a profile of a nose. I mean, it's, it's the smallest little, I'll give a great analogy for this. You ever hear of the, there's a painter, Surat. He did uh, Sunday afternoon at the Grand Jatte. It's pointillism. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. If you go to a museum, if you go to a, one of his paintings, you walk right up to it, you put your face right up to it. All it is, is lots of little specks of color, right? Yeah. But if you stand 10 feet away, it all comes together. You see the picture. It's the same thing with sculpting. The littlest tiny little things you sculpt, all the little lines, a little take a quarter of an inch off a nose, tip of a nose, the way an eye turns, the way a jawline is. It may not look like much, but when you stand back, all those little changes you make all add up to the person's face. It's the same thing. So you really have to be really precise. And that's what I find challenging about doing likeness sculpting. You have to, if it doesn't look like them, then you did it wrong. So you really have to have eagle eyes and zoom in and have tons of reference photographs. The next video I will be putting about this Frankenstein's monster mask I'm making, I did something different for a video for my YouTube channel, which is even before I started sculpting, I started shooting videos of the process. So I'm going to actually show 
in this video and it's done, all the little pieces when I put it together, not just showing the beginning and make the making of the mask from beginning to end, but I'm showing how I do the likeness sculpting, how I use Photoshop and Adobe Illustrator to compare my sculpture to the photograph of the actual actor in makeup and seeing how I have to revise the sculpture. It's going to be really cool. It's going to be really in-depth. Oh, wow. that That's super cool, man. I'm definitely going to check that out. I love watching all of those kind of like artisanal videos and people who like really are know their craft and they can show you an, an angle to it that you didn't even I had no idea I had no idea that you you know it would go to that much detail and compare all of those shots and and, and you know use those resources for that kind of stuff and I, I love seeing that I absolutely love it it's gonna be good it might be like half an hour long but it's gonna be good and it's gonna show literally I mean literally the video is gonna start I don't even have the clay out yet <laughs> All the, the, video, the first shot of the video is only is a printout of Boris Karloff as Frankenstein, a profile of him, and I'm cutting out a foam core silhouette, actual size of his head, so I can use that to hold up against the clay, so I'm making sure I'm getting the profile correctly. That's how the video is going to start, and the video will end with the finished painted mask with the hair done. Oh, that's awesome. But I'm still sculpting it, so the video <laughs> it's going to it'll probably be May when the thing is, mask is done and, this, and the video is done, but it'll, it'll, be, it'll be cool. It'll be cool. Oh, no, that's going to be great. And definitely all of our listeners tune in for that. We'll definitely throw a link into the show notes when that comes around and, and probably uh, may, maybe get you back to talk a little bit about it. That would be fantastic. But before we go, we would be totally remiss if we didn't ask you. And I apologize for this impression. Um, Russ, what's your favorite scary movie? I don't know. I thought it was pretty good. <laughs> that's a difficult. Can I give more than one? Sure. I would have to say the three that come to mind. All right, Exorcist is the one that freaked me out as a kid, watching it on TV. Yep. I love The Exorcist. I also love Phantasm from 1979, oh. which is the weirdest, wacky, goofy, fun movie. Uh, American Werewolf in London. I love that because it's funny and it's scary. Um, but I love The Howling. I love John Carpenter's The Thing. I mean, there's so many. Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which is not the remake. Benicio Del... Not Benicio. Guillermo uh, del Toro? Yeah, he made it. It was horrible. The original is a TV movie from the early 70s, which I actually have on DVD. And actually, one of the stars of it who played one of the creatures died the other day, Felix Sila, who I met a couple of years ago at a local New Jersey convention. He played one of the creatures. And if you go to my Instagram page, yesterday I posted a picture of him posing with the mask I made of his character. Oh, neat. Yeah. I, I had no person. idea. He played, he played cousin It on the Adam family in the 60s. He huh. played uh, some robot in Buck Rogers in the 70s. He played lots of little people roles. And he was 82. He had pancreatic cancer. And I met him. I saw him at the convention in the elevator. And he was so tiny. I think he was a little bit past my knees. Oh, but he was sure. really sweet. And he, and he died, I think, a couple of days ago. Oh, that's a shame. But, and everybody's posting pictures of him on social media that are fans of, you know, the science fiction and horror genre. Uh, he's getting lots of uh, coverage. And I, so I did the same, reposted the picture of him in my mask. That's awesome. That's awesome, though, that, uh, you know, got to meet him before he passed and, and uh, got to see some of the awesome work that you do, man. That's great. And friends, that is all the time that we have for today. Russ, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time. And if you'd like to check out any of the sites that Russ mentioned, we are going to be linking them in what? Our show notes. <laughs> and uh, yeah, if you'd like to check us out, uh, you know, you can find us all at RockyTalkyPodcast.com. We're also on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok, all at Rocky Talkie Podcast. 
and we will talk to you on Thursday. I didn't know whether to segue that the other. You know what? It doesn't matter. (laughs) Bye, everybody. Bye.